Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Bikes and Big Ideas here on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we've been up to, including our recent review of the Canyon Spectral 29, first look at Reserve's new 30 HD wheels that replace the super popular Reserve 30 from before, all of our other podcasts, a whole bunch of ski reviews, and a whole lot more. So this week on the show, I'm talking to Joe McEwen, the founder of Starling Cycles, who took a rather interesting path to becoming a bike company founder that began with him working as an aerospace engineer, working with composites primarily. But despite that experience, Joe decided to start making bikes out of steel a few years ago, and one thing led to another, and Starling has been his full-time job for about five years now. And so I sat down with Joe because he's got some really interesting takes on bike design and wheel sizes and a whole bunch more. And they run a little bit counter to a lot of what you're seeing in the industry these days. But as I think you'll see, a lot of them make a whole bunch of sense. And it's a cool conversation with a bunch of really good information in it. So let's get right to my chat with Joe. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on. How are you today and where are you today? Uh, yeah, all good. Thanks. Uh, I am sat at home at the moment in my lounge um, in Bristol in the UK. Been down at the workshop today, but just come back to record this for you. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to do it. So just thought it'd be a good one to have you on. Starling's kind of a interesting company doing some things your own way in, in the bike world. And uh, a lot of it's pretty neat. But before we get into that, I'd be curious to have you talk a little bit about your prior career as uh, an aerospace engineer, I actually kind of took a, a, a similar path. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I worked as one, uh, was a mechanical engineer um, in a few different industries, including aerospace for a good while before switching things up and going into the, the bike review world. But um, okay. yeah, tell us about what you did before Starling and kind of how that all led to what would become Starling. Okay, so I moved to, I moved to Bristol uh, for university in uh, 1995. Um, to do a mechanical engineering degree. Um, at the end of university, um, I was looking for some some jobs. I went for some graduate training, but I wasn't I wasn't shiny enough for graduate training. wasn't really wasn't really good for me. Uh, and a local company had put a an advert on the notice board that was for a, a stress engineering consultancy. Um, so I took the took the notice down, and then I was the only applicant for the job. So I got this job at this little small company, and they they trained me up as a stress engineer. Um, and then really, yeah, I spent nearly 20 years working for lots of different companies, all in aerospace, all really companies subcontracting to Airbus doing stress analysis. Um, and then at one point I started off on A400M, which is a, a kind of military transporter. Um, don't really like military stuff, but I, I, I had pictures of this, this thing dropping aid to, to, you know, people in refugees in countries. That was my justification for it. But um, so, but a, a, an aircraft with a carbon fiber wing, and we started designing um, a new carbon fiber spa from it. And I was in there really early on doing concept design and doing um, analysis methods. Um, and then from that, I got a job at um, National Composite Center in Bristol, which was a, a sort of government funded. Um, research center looking at carbon fiber methods and designing new bits of technology and and then eventually i ended up doing some pretty boring work that the r&d work kind of dried up and i um got myself on a bicycle frame building course i've kind of always you know you're if you're an engineer you're probably the same you just make things something doesn't work right you make it yourself or you find a way to sort it out yourself you never you never think oh can i buy a new one you think what the first thing is can i sort this myself so i've always ridden bikes and i thought i'd love to make myself a bike so i got myself on a frame building course in uh with a chap called dave yates sort of just in the middle of england built myself a hardtail frame um Hardtail frame wasn't quite right, so I I decided to modify it in my sheds, and I bought a load of stuff to modify it, and I ended up making a bike or correcting the head tube angle it was on this hardtail. Um, and then really that hobby, I started making more and more bikes, and it was sort of taking up my evenings building bikes in the shed. Um, and one of them, I thought oh, this is quite good, and I kind of knew the Dirt Boys sort of Dirt Magazine was over in the Forest of Dean, so I, I sort of called them up and said, "Do you want to see my bike I made? I think it's brilliant." And um, 
took it over and they rode it and really liked it. And that was quite an early bike. And Steve Jones sort of suggested a few changes. So I made a few changes and he ended up you know, raving about this bike I'd made and put it on his internet. And for me, making bikes in my shed as a hobby, I ended up people wanting to buy them. So I was still working full time as an aerospace engineer, but the the bikes were taking up more and more time in the evening. And I was actually working on a project where I was just signing off calculations um, for, for repairs they were. And it turned out I wasn't really needed full time. I was, and my boss was quite happy for me to just do the signing off of the calcs and then go home. So I ended up working less and less time signing off calcs and more and more time building bikes until the point it got, I was like, you've got to give me some more work. I'm, I, you know, kind of, I, I, I can't do this few hours. Uh, and he said, well, you don't want to be a stress engineer, do you? You want to build bikes. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that day went home, looked at all my, uh, looked at, I'd sold perhaps 20 or 30 frames at that point, And I just looked through all the information and basically did a study. Could I make a business out of building bikes in my shed and worked out I needed to sell 50 frames a year. And that'd be enough to you know, pay for my mortgage and get foods, not have a lot of money, like a massive drop in, in wage, but enough to kind of keep us happy. Um, so that's what I did. I think three months later, I finished full-time aerospace and went to full-time bike building in my shed at the bottom of my garden. That's great. And when would this have been? What year are we talking at this point? Um, I can never remember. I'm terrible with dates. <laughs> um, I think it was 2017 was when I went full-time. I think that was that was when I started full-time building bikes in the shed. Okay. Yeah. So been at it for a few years now. And Yeah, a few years now. Yeah. I'd be curious where the name Starling came from too. What was the, the origins of that particular bit? Yeah. My, my shed, it's, it, a shed is a bit it's sort of underdoing it, but it was, it was an office for the people who lived in the house before. So it's, it's kind of a wooden built building. It's not that big. It's like five meters by five meters, but it's got a nice high pitched roof. It's double glazed. Um, but then that's right at the bottom of the garden next to us is, is some allotments. Uh, and the allotments have got some tall trees in it. And when I was building bikes, I would come out and there was always loads of starlings roosting in the roosting in the tree. So I just used to see these starlings all the time. But since the man who owns it has chopped the trees down and the starlings are gone, but it was, you know, and they're, you know, I like, yeah, birds are great things. They're beautiful things. They're, they're interesting things. And I always thought a starling was a really kind of a functional bird, but still beautiful. So it's kind of a simple bird, but then if you look at it close up, it's got beautiful fine details and the coloration's lovely. So it, it sort of matched what I wanted from the brand as well. So, and it's got the word star in it. So that's sort of, that sounds good. It does. It's a neat kind of evocative name. And I like the bit about it sort of matching the brand ethos in a way. So to get into that a little bit more for people who aren't maybe familiar, Starling's kind of basically mostly making steel single pivot bikes and you got a hardtail and, and the rest too. We'll get into the more of the particulars of the lineup in a little bit here, but coming from your background, working with carbon fiber a whole lot, why make the decision to go with steel instead what was what's your sort of thinking behind uh especially steel full suspension bikes being something of a rarity these days why'd you go that direction i suppose to begin with initially it's easier to make steel things in your shed so to start making carbon fiber stuff you need tooling it's messy the quality's never going to be good whereas steel you can just buy a welder and, and a hacksaw and a file and and start making bikes so I always saw carbon as, you know, we, we were working on aerospace carbon fiber and we, we were trying to get things. It was primary structure. So it was trying to get things to absolute certainty. You knew how it was going to behave. So we were looking at the structure of the carbon and any kind of wrinkles, any kind of defects, anything. And the part would be, you'd have a concession. It would take a whole load of effort to prove it. And a lot of, you know, a little bit of waviness. So that was the end of the product. You then see a carbon fiber mountain bike and loads of brands show cross sections through their frames, thinking how clever they are and how good their frames are. And I look at it and I go, it's, it's disgraceful. You know, it's, it's nowhere near aerospace quality. It's, it's fit for purpose as a, a mountain bike. Cause you, you, you're not relying on that um, certainty of non-failure. So an airplane cannot fail. A bike kind of can fail. It's, it doesn't matter too much. You, you warranty it. Hopefully nobody dies, but if an airplane fails, Lots of people, lots of people die. So I keep looking at these carbon fiber bikes and 
the quality was never the same as aerospace. So I just, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. You know, I'd seen aeros- I'd seen carbon fiber at the highest level. I couldn't bring myself to do crummy carbon fiber. So, and I've actually always ridden steel bikes. I've always had a steel hardtail. I actually had, I've never had a steel enduro bike, but I had a couple of steel downhill bikes, a Doberman Stella, which is your kind of way. Um, and SWD, who was a, a small time American frame builder who made made a steel downhill bike, had one of them for a while, and it was it was an absolute beast. It weighed, it did weigh an absolute ton because it had a really thick swing arm. The swing arm weighed more than more than most other bike full frame. So, but it was beautiful to ride. It had that damp, lovely feel to ride. So, yeah, there's a bunch of neat stuff that was happening back around then. I've actually still got hanging on the wall in my shop the uh, Draco Vigilante there. Uh, okay. steel down, downhill bike from right yeah yeah 2005 ish maybe something around there and okay. um the, especially the bit about uh just steel being a more viable thing for the home builder to start with makes a lot of sense and i've joked about this on here before too but i've got a whole mess of cad files and half design stuff that i've toyed with and never gotten anywhere close to actually building any of it and I'm a lousy welder, so it's not like I've uh, I, I, I got to have some brushing up to do before I was ready to actually build anything that would that would work. But keep toying with the idea on and off, and one of these days I'll maybe possibly get around to building something. We'll see. I get sent I get sent lots of CAD files from people who have designed bikes saying, "Can you build me this bike?" And I'm like, "No, you've 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 designed something that can only be made out of 3D printed materials or something. It's not manufacturable." Like whereas I was loved with designing steel bikes that so you'd have this, you'd have the tubes in your hands and you can, you know, all my early bikes, I had no designs. I had some like crummy sketches on a bit of paper and then I would just work out how it all went together as I went along. And, you know, there was, I've never, you know, I still don't do, we, we started, well, we do do CAD now, but that's more for mitering tubes and, but the basic bike designs do very, very basic CAD. We know how everything goes together now. It's quite, uh, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's, you just don't need it. If you know how a bike goes together and you know about all the clearances, you don't need the CAD other than getting the manufacturing quality good. So, so yeah, it makes a lot of sense on why you're going with steel and the single pivot. I, talk about that. I mean, in, in, a, in an age where everyone's been touting their, billion acronym complex linkage designs and all the rest kind of keeping it simple again what's your thinking there um again i've always ridden single pivots i had i've had a few oranges i had a, a cannondale profit which was a fantastic bike um every time i've had multi-link bikes they've caused me problems i had a turn a dhr which was brilliant for about two weeks and then just everything ended up all over the place and I just, I've never got on with multi-link bikes. They, I don't see that they're that much better. They don't feel like they ride any better. So as long as the single pivot is designed properly with a quality shock, you can get it to do everything you want to do. So there's a bit of, and I kind of think as well that if we went back 20 years, maybe 30 years, everybody was doing single pivots. But if everybody progressed along that line, there'd be no differentiator, would there? So companies, I think, were saying, we've come up with this new idea. We'll put this extra little bit in here. It means we can describe it as something. We'll give it a new acronym. We can describe it as the next generation bike. It's got two links. Therefore, it is twice as good. And then someone else goes, oh, we'll put three links. Therefore, it's three times as good. And if everybody was just doing single pivots, there'd be no differentiator. Nobody would be able to. So the, the suspension system has become the differentiator and then you tag a load of marketing onto it and it it becomes you know people start thinking oh more links is better because the marketing's told me it better whereas i i think i'm really lucky that i've come into this at a point where everybody's using multi-links and i can look at it and go well that's nonsense let's just do a single pivot and it and i've got a differentiator by going to single pivot so i've got a point of difference and the suspension works really well if you read any reviews everyone goes oh the suspension works really well so there's this there's a belief that um, it's a linear leverage ratio, so therefore uh, it blows through the end of the travel. But air shocks ramp up, and coil shocks have got a big rubber bumper, so they've got plenty of ramp up at the end of the travel. Um, there's this kind of belief, oh, you need it to be progressive, so it's got st- um, support in the middle. But actually, what you find is all the bikes that are super progressive end up 
having to run such firm spring rates to get over that initial kind of suppleness at the beginning. Otherwise, they just blow through the mid-stroke. So I know quite a lot of bikes that can't run coils because they've designed them to be so um, so progressive. They just they just blow through the mid-stroke all the time. Um, I just – and it – Suspension tuners, if you've got a tune, remember they had the old Santa Cruz's that had J-shaped axle paths and then they had like it would go soft and then it would go, you know, it'd be soft and then firm and then soft again. And it did about 10 things. And you give that to a suspension tuner and they don't know what to do. They can't, they can't deal with it. So we've, we've been chatting quite a lot to uh, TF Tune, that's our local suspension. And he, he rides a single pivot and he loves it. And he keeps sending me these graphs where he's kind of, I think he's running one of these like a shock wheels or something like that. And his suspension setup keeps blowing up the shock wheels because it can't cope with, it can't cope with his single pivot with a coil shock on it, but he knows the suspension is really good. So it's sort of, it's so ingrained in us that we've got to have these weird axle parts and, and yeah. Yeah. Especially that era of like overthinking leverage curves and trying to have three different inflection points and all kinds of weirdness going on was rough it was really i mean i you know you hear the argument that people were trying to sort of tune around the fact that air shocks in that air that day didn't have the like the spring curves out of those were pretty weird too and so you were like stacking weirdness on top of weirdness and trying to two wrongs make a right kind of thing and it mostly didn't work out for well it, is, it does seem like people are mostly figuring out that yeah, I mean, there's some, certainly some variation in kind of how progressive to make things, but there most bikes these days are at least something a much much more straight line leverage curve, at least not anything. And they're getting less and they're getting less and less progressive as time goes on. So a few years ago, everything was super progressive, but you know they're like they're down to very like two, three, four, five, ten, ten percent progressiveness. It's it is it's it's mellowing out a little bit, and it's just been interesting seeing things kind of converge and especially having all of these different sort of conceptual layouts for suspension kinematics people are zeroing in on a much narrower range of of kinematics that actually work right and uh accomplishing in a lot of cases pretty similar stuff with layouts that look pretty different yeah i i I think a lot of the linkage stuff is actually driven by trying to package package the shock into the bike to get a water bottle, for example. So that, that's the only thing that would drive me away from a link uh, from single pivot is I do like bikes sometimes look good with like a vertical shock and a nice simple rear triangle. The aesthetics of a link making it look neat and opening up that front triangle. But and it, it's just a packaging, it's just a packaging solution. You're not trying to change how the suspension works, you're just trying to get it to be packaged a little bit better. But other than that, I just, you know, they, they work really well. Every single review, everybody that rides the bike, they work really well. There's, it just works well, so why change it? The, the other thing is what I think people overestimate how good they are. I'll get, get people to shout at me about this, but generally most people are pretty rubbish bikers, aren't they? Like they're, they're sort of, a, but they're the people who are that talk about oh, I like such and such a suspension curve and I couldn't ride that bike because it hasn't got certain behavior. The people who are really good bikers, all they want is their brakes to work and their suspension not to blow through or anything. They, they just want their bike working properly and then they can ride anything absolutely flat out. So, you know, a, a linear leverage ratio, you can, you can understand it better. It doesn't, do anything, it doesn't do anything stupid. All the way through the stroke, it behaves the same. Um, I think the other thing, I've tried to do is put make the anti not the anti squat but the anti rise so how the bike behaves due to your body weight shifts how that affects the suspension the most so if you can have that as close to 100% all the way through the suspension it means every time you move your weight it doesn't affect the suspension so the suspension is independent of your body body weight shifts and that makes the bike really neutral to ride and then you can understand the bike really well Whereas you see some bikes where that anti-rise is a really low figure or a really high figure. So every time you sort of hang off the back or you're getting forward to get into something, the suspension moves and therefore it does something odd. And then your brain's got to deal with the bike doing something odd and then you can't concentrate on going fast. So the rider makes the bike go fast, doesn't it? So keep it keep it simple. So you know, linear leverage ratio, 
no, 100% anti-rise. You know, nothing, nothing doing anything odd. Make your brakes work, and then you'll ride fast. And I think there's a fair bit to be said for that. Frankly, it's it's been a minute since I've been on a a single pivot bike. There just aren't aren't a whole lot of them out there these days. And uh, you know, we're testing what's available, and <laughs> that of late has not been single pivot. So, I especially I'm yeah, kind of curious just to see like especially something with more modern geometry because of course bike geometry has changed immensely and not all that long and you probably you say you haven't ridden single pivots but you probably have so the common style is a common style downhill bike is a single pivot single single pivot axle path but not anything that's a true single pivot without a, a linkage modifying the leverage curve at least yeah no you're, you're right about it from the the axle path perspective anyway certainly so i guess i'd be curious to hear a little more about once you kind of got starling really off the ground and we're doing it as a full-time deal um what was your model like or model lineup like to start with? Kind of where were you targeting things from the, the early days? And tell, talk us through a little bit of that. And then we'll go into some of the newer additions. So the, the first bike I made was the Swoop, which is a 27 kind of Venturo trail bike. I think the early ones were like 150, 150. Um, and then really the design has refined, but the overall design hasn't really changed. So all, uh, they're called the core bikes. So there's the murmur, the twist, and the swoop. So we started off with the, the swoop, 27. Um, in fact, the first few bikes I made were 26-inch, and I think we had some 26-inch swoops. But then so it became 27 swoop, and then we built the murmur, the 29, which um, was the bike that got the review with Steve Jones that, that sort of boosted the company and started the company up. Um, but it's exactly the same configuration as the 27 We've got to have a little bit less travel because you can't get the wheels or the, the wheel stroke with the with the bigger wheel. So it's down to one fifth, one forty rear, uh, but still had a one fifty fork, one sixty fork, um, and then we've kind of and that's really the two main bikes, the swoop and the the murmur. But then you know mullets became a thing, so we we started trying out mullets. So to, initially we started testing. Um, the swoop with a shorter travel 29 inch fork on the front, but you could never get the geometry quite right. There was always some compromises. We tried the murmur with a 27 rear wheel, but again, it drops it down too much. There's compromises. And then we sort of actually changed our designs for other reasons. So that the bottom bracket, main pivot, seat tube, all the front portions of the swing arm are identical on all the bikes. So really, the only thing that changes on our bikes is the head tube position. So for a 29er, you move the head tube up a bit to fit a longer fork. For a, you know, a, a larger size, you move the head tube forward a bit. So the head tube position relative to the bottom bracket, main pivot seat tube changes. And then the rear axle position changes. So it's a little bit higher for 29, a little bit lower for 27. So you get to this point where all the core bikes, the center part is the same. We change the head tube. So we ended up with two different swing arms, a swoop swing arm and a murmur swing arm. And then it's very easy to put a swoop swing arm onto a murmur front triangle and make a twist, which is the mullet bike, with no geometry compromises. So you maintain all the geometry, whereas there's so many companies out there just barging the wrong size wheels into an existing bike, maybe sticking some little linkage thing to try and correct it. And, you know, whereas for us, it's... It's just it's just part of the bikes there. So we also did. Did you see the Tellum, which was the the April Fool's joke? Have you seen that? I might have, but I've forgotten. Okay, so we did. We did. We did an April. We did an April Fool's joke. Um, the Starling Tellum, which is mullet backwards, and it was twenty seven front, twenty nine rear, and we That's could right. we right. could do that. And we actually rode it, and it was brilliant. It rode really well. It was a really good riding bike. It's sort of as I was riding it, I came up with this idea that you want to. You want a maneuverable front wheel so you can put it where you want. And then the rear wheel just tracks through. The big rear wheel tracks. So it actually works really well. So maybe there's something there. But, so yeah, the, the core bikes, um, you know, we've added we've added, you know, we've slowly progressed it and there's been refinement of the design, but the the, the overall concept, the overall config- configuration hasn't really changed. The modularity is is interesting and makes a ton of sense. And uh be curious to hear a little bit about sort of your personal thoughts on uh, mullets, particularly. You know, they've kind of become very trendy of late, and uh, 
we'll start with you. I have sort of mixed mixed feelings, but I'm curious where you land on them as a as a general concept. I tell you, if you go to my website, there's a tech blog and there's loads of content about all my all my kind of thinking about all this stuff. And I've got a section about wheel size and this. Yeah. So wheel size contact patch is the first thing. So people say a bigger wheel has got a larger contact patch. Absolute, absolute bullshit. (laughs) The contact patch is only proportional to the pressure in the tire. The contact patch is the pressure times the area, which supports your weight. So a, a three inch tire, a three inch, 29 inch tire with, um, 20 PSI has got exactly the same contact patch as a 26 inch with a two inch tire. Doesn't change the contact patch. So, and I've heard pro racers saying it and I've heard, I've heard, I've heard bike designers saying it, Oh, it's got a bigger contact patch. So, but no, so first thing, different tires, tires don't affect the contact patch. Next thing is bigger, bigger wheels roll over better. If you, if you think about rollover, rollover to me is like a 50 mil or two inch bump, something like that. Something that you just go straight over. If you draw a two inch bump and you then draw a 29 inch wheel and a 27 and a half inch wheel, the angle that bump hits the wheel, the, the wheel chain wheel size has a, such a small impact on the angle it hits the, hits the wheel. So for small size bumps, anything under say four inches, the rollover is the same. The, the angle of attack of the tire is pretty much identical. It's only when you start getting up to like a foot size, you know, like a, as in a foot, a, a foot dimension that, it starts, but that's no longer rollover. You've got to do something to get over that. Um, people talk about the acceleration of bigger wheels. Bigger wheels accelerate slower. They don't because they spin slower. So because it's got a bigger circumference, it actually spins slower. So the energy in the wheel is identical. So 27, 29, they've both got the same, they've both got the same energy. The, the, or so both got the same uh, angular momentum, spinning momentum. The, the thing that's different is the gyroscopic stability. So if you spin the wheel, hold it on the, hold it on the center axle, how difficult it is to move it out of plane. So that of all the numbers you can look at with wheel size, that's the only one I can come up with. This, I suppose the only, the only other thing is a 29 wheel is heavier because there's more of it. Just, you know, just 29 inches of, or well, the circumference of tire plus rim and spoke. So there's a little bit of extra weight because of that, but it's pretty negligible. The, the gyroscopic forces are proportional to a squared term. So, um, you know, I, th- I think there's like you know, 20% more gyroscopic energy in a, in a 29. I need to do these numbers, actually. I keep quoting this, and I've never got around to doing it. <laughs> but someone, someone else did do it, and I did research it. So there's quite a lot, there's quite a lot on the internet about this if you dig it out. Um, but so the 29-inch wheel has got more gyroscopic stability. It's, it's, and it's the thing you notice when you're riding it. A 29er, it's harder to lean the bike over. You've got to put more effort to lean the bike over. But once it's lent over, it stays there. So 29ers are fantastic for drifting. You have to set up early for the corner, and then you just sit in a corner, and it just drifts around corners, and it's really stable drifting. So if that's the difference, is that they're more stable. So, yeah, it translates to the, the rollover thing is as you're barreling through a rock garden, your 29-inch wheels are less likely to deviate. They've got more energy keeping them moving in a straight line. And that, that I think, is what is considered rollover. So your big wheels just keep trucking on. They don't get kicked offline. So it's almost like a steering damper, whereas your 27 get kicked around a bit more. That gyroscopic stability isn't there. So if you if you think about that and accept that, then the mullet kind of makes sense that you have the big tracking thing up the front. So the thing that you steer is more stable, makes your steering a bit slower, but it means that the, the wheel is um, tracks a bit better. And then your rear wheel can just pop and follow through. But then that totally counters what I just said about my tellum, doesn't it? So <laughs> it's uh, so then you, then you get into some other things about the mullet that or the other things about wheel size, which is the difference in bottom bracket drop. So a 29 inch wheel has got a bigger bottom bracket drop compared to a 27. So it's, mine is 15 mil versus 38 mil or 19 mil versus 38 mil. It's quite a lot of difference. There's like 20 mil difference in bottom bracket drop. Um, and you're moving that away from the gyroscopic center of the bike. So the wheels all spinning at the axle line and then your weight that you're applying to the bike is a little bit different. So I, there's a bit of science there that I don't quite understand, but I think having your weight further away from a more st- stable gyroscopic thing accentuates the effect of making the whole thing more stable. The, the other thing is like um, 
manualing something where the bottom bracket is higher is easier, isn't it? So you, you, the bigger wheels and the bigger bottom bracket drop and the more stability makes the 29 more stable, more gyroscopic. The 27, you've got higher bottom bracket. You've got smaller, less gyroscopic stable wheels. Um, you've also tend to have shorter chain stays on a 27 bike, which is a big thing. So the 29 are forces you to have longer stays. 27 tends to have shorter stays. So all those things lend a 29er to be a bit more stable, 27 to be a bit more maneuverable. The mullet then is some point in between those two. Is my argument. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, you know, there's other things where the mullet is good is if you've got short legs, a 29er, you do buzz the wheel on your, on your bum on a big drop. So I kind of think it's not a golden ticket. I think that's what's wrong is that there's lots of marketing saying, yeah, a mullet is better than a 29er and it's better than a 27 half. It isn't. It's halfway between the two. <laughs> So does that make it better? Maybe it does for some people, but it's not. It's not. It's not a sum. It's not greater than some of its parts. It's just. It's just a midpoint between the two. Yep. Is that a good answer? That is. I and I think that's pretty spot on. And I, I mean, I've been spending time on number of mullet bikes fairly recently, and I definitely get the appeal. But I think for me personally, I have just found that the combination of kind of the more stable feeling front end with a back that cuts in and darts in quicker just doesn't particularly jive with my riding style very well and i tend to not really get along with them that well to be honest and i'm six feet tall i've i've got long enough legs that the clearance is generally not too big a deal for me i certainly understand that that's not true for everybody and that i can very readily imagine the benefits for someone shorter but yeah, for me personally, it's it's not a big deal, and yeah, so I'm the same. I'm 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 sick. I'm sick. Well, five eleven. I I prefer my I prefer my Murmur, my twenty nine inch bike. I've ridden. I've been riding the twist a little bit recently, and it is it's easier to get on the back wheel and manual, and that's something I'm not particularly good at. So it sort of helps a little bit with that. But by default, I always go back to the Murmur. I feel more comfortable on it. But then different people ride in ways. We got Ollie in the workshop. He's actually like six foot one. You follow him on his bike and he never goes in a straight line. He's, you know, his bike's all over the place. He's always picking different lines. He's just built himself a 27 because he just felt he got on better with the 27. So it's almost you'll pick the bike to suit your riding style and you'll go better. Don't pick the bike that you think is the fastest bike. That's never going to work, is it? It's, uh, yeah. And I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm a full 29er diehard. Like I, I, there are a bunch of 27.5 bikes that I like really well. And, I think those have their place too. Just, um, I mean, they all do, right? It's like you said, it's, it's different styles for different people, but, um, yeah, I'm really finding that for me personally, consistent wheel size works better than, than a mullet. And I, you know, I can, I can pretty happily go either 27.5 or 29, depending on what the bike's trying to do and the rest, but something I've been toying around with a lot, um, actually in the midst of writing a couple of reviews of mullets right now. So I'm sort of getting my head around it and but yeah i think what you said is uh pretty on the nose there it's it, it, there's, there's, there's so much marketing that people say it is the go yeah it's, it's the sort of the gold bullet isn't it this is going to be better no it isn't nothing everything is always a compromise like heavy heavy wheels and light wheels like light wheels go faster or they they pedal better and get up hills quicker but they're less stable pit stickers set heavy tires on it tracks through rough stuff really well, but it's a dog to pedal uphill. There's always a compromise. There's nothing is ever going to be good at both because you need, yeah, everything's a lie, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Find the right lane for you and kind of the right set of trade-offs that work. But uh, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's the compromises. Pick your, pick your compromise, basically. Yep. I think that's spot on. Let's go through a little bit of the rest of the lineup. So you kind of talked about the core bikes, but you've got some some more interesting little even a little more uh unconventional stuff in the lineup too so uh let's get to the rest of it i suppose the beady little eye is a good one to talk about and that's kind of my my favorite bike so that's um a single speed full suspension bike that was actually the third bike i ever made the first swing arm i made was for a, a single speed i've always in our local woods there's no massive hills it's a lot of tight twisty stuff it's always muddy i've always ridden single speed and i just thought let's make a let's make a single speed full suspension bike. So if you've got the, the way it works, it's got a, well, it uses a BMX crank axle, nice, strong 90 mil steel crank axle. Uh, and then it's got two sets of bearings in the frame, two sets of bearings on the swing arm, all spinning on the same axle. 
So it just means as the suspension moves, there's no chain growth. You can run it single speed with a tensioner or with a with a the original ones had a horizontal dropout, it's now got a little eccentric. So you can run a single speed chain, the chain doesn't drop off, it's beautifully silent. You you can't get that much travel out of it because it's bottom bracket pivot. I can get like 90 mil and then the and then the tire starts hitting the seat tube. But it's it's kind of got a weird design in that because the chain line is offset from the main pivot, it bobs. So there's quite a big, you know, the the, the chain, you've got a 32 tooth chain ring. It's quite a big gap between where it's pivoting and where the chain force is coming. So it bobs. So you have to run it really, really firm to stop that happening. But then I've designed it with a regressive leverage ratio. So as soon as it starts moving, it keeps moving. So you sort of have this bike that is rigid like a hardtail until you hop off something and then you hop off something and it moves, the travel moves. So it's like a hardtail that gives when you want it to give. And it sounds, it sounds awful. It's totally counter to anything we do, but you ride it and it's amazing. It absolutely flies like a hardtail. And then you jump off something and you land and it's got a bit of cushioning when you land and it's firm. So it's not like it blows through the travel or anything. It's set up firm, but, and it's just, it's just the most fun bike. It means you can have hardtail geometry. So you can have a super low bottom bracket because it's not running any sag. You know, you can have a nice slack head angle and yeah, it's brilliant. So that's, and it, it means the design of the bike is as simple as it can be really. You look at it and it's, you know, you can't see the pivot. You can't, it's a beautiful looking, simple looking bike. And we do a 27 and a 29 and you could have a mullet one if you wanted. We could do that easily. And then what other bikes? We've got the, the stainless hardtail, which has come out recently. So we've, we've never really done hardtails because the manufacturing effort of doing a hardtail compared and the price you can sell it at doesn't make sense compared to the price you can sell it at full suspension bike at and the effort for a full suspension bike. So it wasn't really economic to do a hardtail, but we've got some made in Taiwan and we, we, you know, we get our, we get quite a lot of stuff made in Taiwan. We get our swing arms made in Taiwan and then we make the front triangles in the UK. Um, Taiwan, the factory use our, our best in the world at doing stainless and titanium and top end steel. So, they've got the capability to do stainless and I wanted to do a, a stainless hardtail just to have a differentiator from everything else that, that's out there. There's, there's a bazillion different hardtails. There's no other stainless mountain bike hardtails as far as I can see. I haven't seen any, not that are not one-offs by tiny small builders. There's no kind of production stainless hardtails, mountain bikes. You might correct me now. You're looking like you're going to correct me, but <laughs> No, I was just thinking about it, but I, I don't have one either. No, I can't. So it's 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 a beautiful thing. It's a it's a mullet hardtail, but uh, on a hardtail, it kind of makes sense that um, hardtails are for fun for me. They're for bombing around the woods. They're for jumping around. They're just for having fun on. So it doesn't matter that the mullet makes it a little less stable. It means you can manual it a lot better. It means you can get some nice short chain stays on it. So that's a that's a good bike, the hardtail. Um, and then we've got Spur, which is the gearbox bike. So um, I've always wanted to try gearbox. You know, they 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 seem like they're a fantastic solution. So we we built a gearbox bike. So we actually built the first prototype probably three years ago now, and we've been riding a couple of prototypes. I've had one, and then uh, the chap who actually runs my my owners page, my Facebook owners page, is is a customer who's become a good friend and a test rider for us. And um, the gearbox bike is fantastic for its intended purpose. It's it does have a little bit of drag in it as much as, as much as, you know, people say they don't, and they do have a little bit of drag, which means it will go uphill, but it just goes uphill a little more slowly. Um, but then all the benefits of it's relatively high pivot. There's no chain growth. You've got no mass on the rear wheel. We can get 170 mil travel out of it. Um, it's absolutely silent. It doesn't make a sound at all. And mine's got a, a project three, two, one, sort of silent hub on it so it, it doesn't make a sound and you can't you can't you know a bike not making any sound is almost the most important thing you could it makes you go so fast because there's nothing in the, putting you off there's nothing stopping your concentration so there's drawbacks to it but then there's a whole load of benefits to that gearbox bike and you know if i'm going if i'm going to a, a, any kind of uplift event if i'm going on a bike in holiday and we're going to ride some big hills. It's yeah, it's fantastic, and the the grip you get out of that bike is just unbelievable. It's it's it just sticks to the ground. You you 
you, you just you go around corners so fast because it just keeps gripping. So, so it's quite a. I think it, it will never be a mass. You know, it'll be, never be a sort of mainstream bike because of the drag and people always people like stuff to moan about, don't they? So they'll moan about that. So, but um, that's an interesting bike. And then we've got the downhill bike, the Stern downhill bike. So that is again when. When I used to ride, I haven't been a downhill bike for years, but when I used to ride downhill, I always rode single speed because I just used to destroy mechs all the time. Um, I think I was living in Spain when I first did. I lived in Spain for a while and I used to ride, there's a load of tracks in the south of Spain I used to ride. It's really rocky, really rough. I just was destroying mechs continuously. So I bodged a single speed. I had an orange Patriot and I bodged a single speed with... Uh, some bits of my derailleur that had been destroyed sort of bolted to my chain device and some rubber bands and constructed a, a tensioner that meant I could run my downhill bike single speed. And it was brilliant. And there's a bit of fanning around getting the right gearing, but once you've got the gearing right, it runs really well. And you, you learn to carry speeds. You learn to let off the brakes a bit more. It actually makes your riding really good. And you know, as you come out of a corner, you're in the right gear or well, you're in the wrong gear but it doesn't matter. You just stamp on the pedals and you just go. Whereas if you, yeah, when I was riding a downhill bike, I was, yeah, I was always in the wrong gear. It's a whole, it's, it's almost like a professional skill, isn't it? To be getting your braking and your gearing done at the right point. And I was never good enough to do that. So, so anyway, always, always riding a downhill, a single speed downhill bike. And I always had this design in my head for a jack shaft, single speed downhill bike. So I saw Brooklyn machine works, and looked at that and thought that'd be perfect as a single speed. It's probably the Superco Silencer, which was the, the sort of follow on from the BMW. They're a bit more refined. They looked a bit more. And I just thought, why is nobody running that single speed? And then where, as I started building bikes, I thought, sorry, I'll just make one. So I, I made the Stern single speed downhill bike. Um, the first one got raced by Brett Wheeler out in Portugal. And he, I think he got, I think he was second in the elite series out there and absolutely loved it. It, it rides really well. Again, you've got high pivot, you've got no mass on the rear wheel. It's super supple suspension. Um, it just tracks, it grips, it carries speed. So yeah, that's become a, and we haven't sold that many of them. It's a, it's, it's almost, it's a fantastic bike, but it's almost, it generates masses of like, attention and we don't make that many. We sell a few. I know it's, I know it's super, super niche, but you know, it's good fun to do it, isn't it? That's uh those look really cool. And like you, I've done the single speed downhill bike thing a bit and it does work pretty well. You know, it's not what I would choose to race if I was trying to find every possible little second, but it depends. It depends which, it depends which tracks you're on. So if you're on a certain track where that gear works for the whole track, sure, it can work as well as, you know, it can work as anything. But if you're on a track that's got, you really got to sprint out the gate and, but then it's got a, a massive jump at the bottom that you've got to pedal into and you need a high gear for. So if the track isn't set up for it, but if the track's set up for the single speed, then all you've got big, strong legs, then you just get away with it as well. So yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, yeah, those look cool. And the, the whole concept of just having totally silent, no, no possible way yeah. that there's any chain slap or anything like that. Yeah, sounds yeah. great. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about this whole, load of uh steel bikes but you did just sort of put out this prototype carbon e-bike that something pretty different from you so tell us about that particular project yeah um so like i said i worked at national composite center for a few years so it's probably two years ago now one of my old colleagues contacted me and they were looking at developing a new carbon manufacturing process they needed um a partner in the bike trades and then a partner in a sort of carbon manufacturing and chap gave me a ring and said, we're doing this thing. Do you want to be involved in the projects? You can be the, the bike bike company partner in it. So for them, that's kind of good. I've got the experience in R&D. I've got the experience in carbon fiber, but I'm also a, a bike designer. So it's kind of perfect. Um, so the project is more to try and develop a new manufacturing process. The fact we've produced the, an e-bike with a jack shaft with a steel swing arm is just, you know, that's just what we had to have a focus for the project, but really we're trying to develop a new manufacturing process. Um, and that's about as much as I can tell you about that. <laughs> like, there's a lot of, there's not, I could tell you it uses, um, 
braided thermoplastic main tube. So the, the carbon is all woven. It's kind of continuously woven. And then it's, it's actually using something called commingled um, nylon. So the, as you weave the carbon, you also weave nylon in at the same time. So the the resin, which is or the, the the matrix, which is the nylon, is in, is all included in the the sort of dry sock. And then all you do is you heat it up, and nylon melts, and it all goes in the right places, and you end up with a with a composite tube. Um, but that's pre existing technology. Boeing owns the patent. You know, it's it's being used in a few places, but it lends itself really well to bike tubes. The the clever bit we've been looking at is the lugs. So essentially, you have these tubes that then slot into lugs at the head tube, at the the seat tube. Um, The clever stuff we're looking at is how we manufacture those lugs and how the lugs are joined to the tubes. And that's that's where I can't tell you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I mean, it sounds like a fun project to be working on. Is this something that you envision really going forward and turning into production bikes at some point? Or is it kind of just a design study to figure that out the manufacturing and learn learn what you can from it and we'll see. The intention is to turn it into a manufacturing process. So what what kind of drew me to it was I said earlier on that carbon manufacturing for bikes, when you look at it and you cut it all apart, it's pretty rubbish. This this process and the way we're doing it, we can guarantee really high quality and we can inspect stuff mid process. So we can, you know, reduce the scrap rate. Um, it's much lower energy to melt a thermoplastic than it is to, to cure an epoxy resin. So the energy required to manufacture is a lot lower. Um, thermoplastic is a lot tougher. So for impacts, one of the problems with carbon frames is you whack it. Um, it's got a little scratch on the outside, but it's damaged internally and you can't see that. So you get some kind of catastrophic failure down the line. Um, so it's tougher. Is this impact damage a lot better than the nylon rather than the epoxy? Um, it's more repairable. You can just you could just really melt a, a nylon patch on it and a bit of carbon fiber, and it'd be quite easy to repair it. Um, it can kind of be repurposed a little bit, so you can reform the you can reform the tubes at a later date. So you could cut out a tube on an old frame that's had it past its life. Um, cut out tube, cut it open and stick it in a tool and turn it into a mudguard without degrading the properties too much. So it's got kind of not recycling because it isn't recycling, but it's got much better reuse potential than epoxy. Epoxy you can't do anything with other than chop it up and stick it as a filler in something. So so there's there's lots of environmental reasons why this new carbon is good or this new process is good, new material is good. Um, well, it's not a new material, but a new, new way of using it is good. Um, so that kind of drew me into thinking there's some potential with this. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can get some more budget. We can get a partner to help us develop it. We can do something to move it forward and turn it into a proper, you know, let's manufacture bikes. I mean, it lends itself to, you know, I've got designs for kids' bikes, really simple kids' bikes that could be used, made this process. And, you know, I've got loads of ideas in my head about how it can be used, but to get to that next bit, you know, I'm a tiny little company. I was very lucky to get this funding, but we, we've had a little bit of further funding. Um, I've got some other partners potentially involved, so we're slowly moving things forward, but it's it has potential. I'd love to make it work, but my day job is still running styling cycles and making making steel bikes, so... Well, it'll be interesting to see where that goes and uh, looking forward to seeing what else you have in store and continue progression of styling. It's been a, been a cool ride so far and I'm sure there's more to come. So should let you get going here pretty soon, but podcast is called Bikes and Big Ideas. After all, we do like to wrap up by asking our guests if they have a big idea to share. Anything kind of goes with this one. So uh, do you have a big idea for us, Joe? I, oh, do you know what I do? What something something I'd love to do is clunker racing. <laughs> I just think I, I've, I know I'm in the bike industry and I'm trying to sell bikes to people and sell technology, but it, it's so it's become so non-inclusive, hasn't it? It's like I get I get told data about the average mountain biker and they earn a huge amount of money. They're all university educated. They're all white white male. It's it's just. It's such a non-inclusive sport. As much as we like to think we're, you know, we're educated and we're liberal and all this, it's so you need something that's a bit more, a bit more inclusive. And I just think the technology does allow us to do more, but it doesn't give us any more fun. If you think about it, you've, you've had as much fun on our bikes through the whole. You know, I've always had fun on bikes. It doesn't matter what the bike is; you have fun on it. 
So let's get a big hill with two tracks running down, um, big fire at the bottom with loads of beer. And basically you can, you, you, this, this is kind of race format, I suppose you, uh, you can ride the track as many times as you want. The fastest time you get contributes. Um, but the bike is massively simplified. The bike has to be rigid and it has to be single speed. And that's the only requirement. And then it can be anything else you want. And you, you let people turn up and if they've got, they can have a hard tail with gears and they can just cut the, they can cut the, the, um, the mech, the mech um, cable. So they can't change gear. And if they've got forks on it, they can pump the forks up to 250 PSI. So they don't move, you know, so we enable everybody to turn up and race on any bike and you just all bum down the hill. You've got all day to do it and you can have a beer and a fire at the end of the day and enjoy it. And, you know, just turn it into, and the same people will win and the same people will come last and everybody will have had the same amount of fun. And you, you hopefully develop it so that, um, that becomes a standard for the bike. So, you know, if you race clunker series, you know, you can buy a pair of handlebars off another bike and they'll fit on yours. Or you can buy wheels off someone else and you can swap them over, or you can buy a headset or bottom bracket and everything's interchangeable. So just make it enabling and make it just for the fun. But but then again, I'm a I'm a bit of a geek, tech geek, so I kind of like all that as well. So it's tricky. It's tricky. No, I I love that. And this is the second week in a row we've actually had a new race format proposed. Last week, uh, Ed Masters okay. <laughs> was was advocating for mountain bike straight rhythm race, kind of akin to the the moto one that okay. put on, but. Um, that's good. No, and, and yours reminds me a whole lot of um, kind of back in the day when I was racing a lot of downhill on the East Coast. Like, just, you know, there'd be a, a downhill race weekend. You'd have practice Friday, Saturday, race on Sunday. But Friday, Saturday nights, a bunch of people like Mickey, the guy who was running spooky bikes at the time, was really one of the big cheerleaders for this, but would just scratch in a little dual slalom track on one of the ski hills at ski runs at the, the resorts. And, um, just have a super casual dual slalom race in the evening with people racing them on their downhill bikes often and kind of just not taking it very seriously and big bonfire and a bunch of beer, like you were saying. And it was awesome. So I'm all for this. Let's, let's bring that back. And uh, yeah, doing it on clunkers sounds great. So yeah, two thumbs up for me on that one. We'll see what we can do to make it happen. <laughs> well, Joe, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for coming on. Been great chatting with you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Thank you. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and we'd really appreciate it if you take a couple minutes to leave us a rating or review of the show in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Joe for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Bye, everybody. <laughs>